Well, as I was meditating upon this passage, I came to a, a realization that perhaps some of you already have many, many years ago, but for me it was fresh and striking about the Sermon on the Mount and about the ministry on the whole of our Lord Jesus. The emphasis that Jesus puts in prayer. It is indisputable that perhaps the main emphasis that Jesus puts throughout his ministry, and in particular as we are looking through the Sermon on the Mount, is on the need for prayer. It may come as a surprise, because it is not immediately obvious why this would be so. If we're speaking about the kingdom of God, for instance, in the Sermon on the Mount, one would think that as he's teaching the disciples, the, the main emphasis would be on, on outreach, on evangelism, on preaching the kingdom of God. But very little, very little is said by Jesus, at least in the recorded ministry that we have in the Gospels, about how to preach. But time and time again, he encourages us, he emphasizes for us the significance of prayer, the importance of communicating with God over how we interact with man. I think it makes sense when you think about it, the importance of communicating with God over the, our eloquence with, with man. Jesus puts the priority of a spiritual life, not in, in the outward, that's what the Pharisees did, but in the inward, in the relation between the children of God and the Heavenly Father. And this is the sentiment, not all of the passage we just read, of, but of the, the, the first part of this passage prayer that's the that's the emphasis that jesus gives to us in this particular passage jesus not only commands us to pray number one but he also makes a promise to those who pray that is the second point we're going to see and thirdly and from verse 9 to verse 11 he validates both the command and the promise by giving us an analogy and because i want to get through verse 12 as well today that kind of wraps all the, the rest of the Sermon on the, of the, on the Mount up until now, we'll look at the golden rule. So it's four points. The command to prayer, the promise to those who pray, the analogy, the illustration that Jesus uses to validate both the command and the promise. And fourthly, we'll look at the, the concluding statement, the, all, the, the encompassing statement that Jesus makes at the end of this sermon. So firstly, the command. It is not just an invitation, is it? In the original uh, language, in the Greek, the, what is being said here, ask, seek, and, and uh, knock, it's not just a, a simple uh, invitation, it's in the present, uh, it's, it's a command, uh, it's an imperative. Ask, but it's not just ask one, it's keep on asking. Seek, but it's not just seek once, it's keep on seeking and knock. Keep on knocking on that door. 
the emphasis that Jesus is putting in the, uh, uh, in the words here is of one of persistence. And we know about persistence. It's only those who keep asking that receive. It's only those who keep seeking that find. And it's only those who keep knocking that the door will be opened. And there is also a, a, a clear progression, like a, a, a building up of the emphasis. Asking is, is good, but seeking is asking plus doing something, a, an earnestness. They involve, it, 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 it conveys something of a, um, a, a vigor and a, a, an action in it. But knocking involves both asking and acting, but also persevering in that. And it shouldn't surprise us. Much of the ministry of our Lord in teaching us how to pray is commanding us to be persistent in our prayers, to keep knocking until the, door, the doors of heaven swing open. The Lord Jesus commands us to approach the throne of grace with a, a holy a tenacity, with a, a, a determination that is uh, unstoppable, that refuses to give up or to let go until an answer is received. I was, as I was thinking about this, the, the first uh, uh, thing that sprung to my mind as an example of, of this is Jacob wrestling with the, with the angel there in the book of Genesis. And yes, and to, Jacob wrestled with the, with the angel in the book of Genesis until he received the blessing from the angel. And yes, the situation with Jacob was a physical one, but it's an illustration as well of our spiritual wrestling, of our spiritual prayer. Our, our Savior, the Lord, he encourages us in this passage to have that Jacob-like attitude in our dialogue with God. I thought of Paul as well. You know, in, in uh, 2 Corinthians, Paul says that three times he asked. He says concerning this thing, this thorn on the flesh that he had, three times he pleaded with God that it might depart. And you might say, yeah, but that doesn't mean that he was right. But Paul doesn't seem to be apologetic there. He doesn't seem to be putting himself down like, oh, I, I lacked faith. I had to pray three times. In fact, I would suggest to you that what's happening in the persistent prayer of Paul demands more prayer than just praying once and letting it go. There is a, a, a faith uh, to it about persisting in prayer, about persevering in that prayerfulness. It is so often we misinterpret uh, praying time and time again as if it's a, a nagging or annoying. But it's Christ himself, God himself, that tells us that we are to persist. That actually persisting in prayer, far from being an, a, a, a marker of unbelief, persisting in prayer is a marker of our faith, of our understanding, of our, of our knowing that only God can answer 
Only God can supply and meet these needs. It expresses this conviction as you pray and pray and pray again. It expresses this conviction that unless God does it, I have nowhere else to turn. Who am I going to turn to? It is this humble attitude. Because if there were other op options, you would pray once, you didn't answer, I'm going to get going and start doing something. That's faithlessness, which leads to prayerlessness. Far from being a lack of faith, it is a marker of true faith, of true know knowledge of our position and of the power, love, wisdom of God. Could, would we dare to say, for instance, that our Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was faithless because he prayed three times? No. Jesus himself, he gave two parables that speak of this. He gave us the parable of the persistent widow and the judge in Luke 18. In Luke 11, he gives the parable of the import, uh, in importunate friend teaching us that we are to be persistent in prayer but now the question might be because we've been going through the sermon on the mount what is the difference between persistent prayer and vain repetitions our lord told us didn't he in, in chapter six we we read that we are not to have vain repetitions in our prayers what is the difference between persevering and nagging and asking for those things that we know we won't get an answer. Well, a, a few questions you can ask to find an answer. Are you repeating that prayer because you think that at some point you will be heard because of the quantity of your words? That it's the, the quantity of your words that will uh, twist the arm of God to doing whatever you want? Are you being persistent on that prayer because you think God doesn't know? Are you being persistent on that prayer because you think God doesn't actually want to fulfill or, to, or, to, or is unwilling uh, to fulfill and to supply your every need? And he needs to be persuaded of it, like children do, like uh, my children do. You tell them no once and they'll, they'll come back and, and ask again the next day because they, they want to persuade me. If those are the reasons why you're, you're persisting in prayer, that's not really persistent prayer. That's actually more akin to vain repetition. But perhaps the primary reason why we must persevere in prayer and the difference between perseverance and nagging is that sometimes God wants it, that perseverance to work something in us or through us. It has often been said, I remember hearing this from when I was a young, a young Christian believer, probably around 14, 15 years of age. Uh, the, our, my pastor told me, we were talking about prayer and the answer to prayer, and it stuck with me. I'm sure all of you have heard this, and if you haven't, you, it's, it's a logical thing to... to to think, but at that time it hit me particularly uh, clearly. God, when we pray, God always listens. Sometimes he says yes, other times he says no, and other times he says wait. The point 
uh, of all of this. You might ask, well, but why would God say wait? You've prayed for something. You either should say yes or no. Why would God say wait? And why would we have then to persevere when God says wait to us? I have about three, four reasons here why often it is the case that God gives us a, not a yes, not a no, but a wait a little bit longer. Often, number one, God asks us to wait in order to realize, for us to realize that we need to rely entirely on him. If every time we pray, we receive that for which we pray, we might start becoming self-reliant. We might start treating God as a butler or as a genie in a lamp or as Santa Claus. Uh, we, we, we might start thinking of him as a, a, a vending machine that you just go press the button, receive what you want. So you're relying on yourself, or on, a, on your capacity to pray for those things that you need. And often God tells you, wait, so that you know, learn that it's not in your time, but it's in the time of God. Because that is the natural tendency of all of us. It is your natural tendency. It is your natural tendency. It's my natural tendency. Left to our own devices, we become more and more reliant on ourselves. We trust ourselves. We want to be in control of everything, micromanage every single element. This is ingrained in our human nature. And God sends these weights so that we would learn that it's not about us. And it's not us that, uh, that get to decide how things are done. To cause us to feel utterly helpless unless the Lord God acts. Someone said that uh, that's how we learn to trust, to have faith in God's providence. It is through the, these countless situations in our lives that we pray for, but, but seem to not be resolved, that we cannot control, that we learn to trust that I cannot control them, but God can. I'll keep praying. Persisting in prayer also helps us to prepare spiritually to receive what God wants to give us. What do I mean? Very often, God may be ready to give, but we are still not at the point of receiving. We're still not prepared to receive. By causing us to persist, by telling us to wait, by not answering our prayers immediately, by causing us to go and seek, to go and knock, God helps us to understand that there's something in us that needs to be changed before the answer is given positively. might be that our heart is not right to receive. It might be that uh, there is some pride element that needs to be humbled. It might be that uh, we are thinking uh, of this thing that we are asking as a right. How often we do that? We pray for things as if we deserve those things, when it's actually a, a, a grace, a favor from God. That's, that's pr pr part of the reason why Cain's uh, sacrifice was not accepted. It wasn't because the sacrifice was bad. 
You know the story of Abel and Cain. Abel and Cain come with the first sacrifice. And one is accepted and the other is rejected. What is interesting there in, the, in Genesis 4 is that it, we're set, uh, it is said to us that Cain was accepted and his sacrifice, uh, that Abel was accepted and his sacrifice, and Cain was rejected and his sacrifice. You then go to the book of Hebrews and you understand. It was by faith, it was by faith that Abel offered the most excellent sacrifice. The problem was here. That sacrifice, that, that action that was not accepted by God at that time was, was because it, there was an unreadiness, there was a lack of trust. And related to this, related to this point is point number three about why sometimes God says wait. Sometimes God says wait because our prayers are not precisely... Uh, God says wait to refine our requests, to, to fine-tune what we're asking for. Have, has this ever happened to you, brother and sister? You pray for something, first time, second time. The third time you start thinking, maybe I need to change just a little bit of how I'm praying. You start fine-tuning it because you're reflecting on, the, on what you're asking for. You're reflecting on why you're asking for it. And the process of repeated, persistent prayer fine-tunes our, our prayers. It starts weeding out and, and taking away the, the selfish motivations. You, you, you remember the words of James. James says that we ask and we receive not because we don't ask rightly, because we're asking for selfish reasons. When you persist in prayer, it gives you a chance and it gives you an opportunity to refine and to, to search the reasons why that prayer, of, of that prayer? It's like proofreading uh, uh, a text, a manuscript that you write. It, it's like a, a rev revising the prayer time and time again. And finally, at times it may seem like God is not listening to our prayers, but it's not because he doesn't want to respond could be that he's telling us wait because of the timing. Might not be something wrong with, with our prayer. It might be that it's not the right time. But we are called to persist. We don't know everything. Brothers and sisters, if, if God gave us everything we want right at the time that we asked, we would be miserable. And you probably can think of two or three examples where you asked for something. God didn't give it to you at that time. He gave it to you later and you go, now was the right time. I'm glad God didn't give it to me at that time. I'm glad that God didn't answer my prayer at that time. Because God is most wise. He's omniscient. It's not about not wanting to respond or give. Sometimes we're asking for the wrong thing, but we already consider that. When we're asking for the right thing and we still don't get it, it's not that God doesn't want to give. God is waiting for the time that would maximize the glory and the good of his people. So those are some of the reasons why God sometimes tells us wait. The question that, before we move to the second point, the question that comes to my mind is when Jesus says, ask, 
or commands us to ask, seek, and, uh, and knock. Often we take it as a general statement to all prayers. And it can be applied to that. It can be applied to anything that we ask, anything that we seek, anything that we knock for. But we need to remember that this command is in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. We need to remember that the context of what Jesus is saying here is in the con- on the greater context of seeking first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. And these are the things in specific that Jesus is talking about. Ask for those things that I've just spoken to you about. That humble spirit, that clean heart, that meekness, that non-violent, non-quarrelsome attitude, that yearning, that thirsting and hungering for, for righteousness. That's what Christ is saying to us to ask for. Those good things that the Father is happy to give us. And as, as you remember, all of this can be encompassed in one, one thing. Seek the righteousness of God. Ask for it. Uh, seek for it. Knock for it. And you will receive it. That's the promise that we have both in verse 7 and verse 8. And I'll be quick here. But in this point, he who asks receives. He who seeks finds. To him who knocks, the door will be opened. There is, a, there is a point here, and I, I've made this point at, at times, of, of looking at it the other way around. Turning the coin on its head. Jesus says that those who ask receive, those who seek uh, find, and those who knock, uh, it will be open to them. The reverse is equally true. It's, the, 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 it's how it goes. If you, if you don't knock, you will not find. If you don't ask, you will not receive. If you don't knock, uh, seek, you will not find. And if you don't knock, it will not be open to you. This alone should compel us to pray for these things. Without seeking, no one finds. Without knocking, all doors will remain open, uh, closed. No doors will be open. Prayer is the method, the means that God has commanded by which he blesses his people. This alone should convince us that we should pray. And this should give us confidence. The promise should also give us confidence. There are prayers for the kingdom, for the righteousness that we are to seek in the kingdom of God will be answered. It's an irresistible reason. If you truly understand that your prayers are answered, because you're asking for those good things that no father rejects from the son. I will, I'm getting to, to the, from his son. I'm asking, getting to point number three. Uh, he will give it to you. You can be fully convinced that you will be heard. The problem is that we don't have faith. That we will trust the goodness and the willingness of God to fulfill his promises. And that's why we're prayerless so often. I would argue that all of our faults in prayer is connected to our lack of understanding of who God truly is.
And Jesus, thirdly, gives us a, an illustration of why this promise uh, of what, uh, give us, gives us an intimation, an analogy that, that bolsters up this command and this promise. He speaks of God, the one who answers prayer, as a father. And he uses that analogy, doesn't he? Uh, of an earthly father. That however much he loves his children, uh, he always gives the best. And how much more so your heavenly father, being perfect and loving as he is, with perfect love, will not give you the best. So often we have this misconception, and that's what causes us not to pray. We have this misconception about God. That he, that he needs to be twisted, uh, that his arm needs to be twisted so that he will answer our prayers. And I find it interesting, I find it wonderful that Jesus uses the father analogy because we can expand on it. We all have fathers. No one in this world besides our Lord Jesus uh, lacked a father. But there are many different kinds of fathers. There are those fathers who, who are loving. I would hope it is the great majority loving yet stern. And they give what the child asks when it's good for the child. It's a father who is um, both uh, loving and disciplined. He will not give those things that are harmful, even though the son asks. But there are those fathers who are reckless. They are, they are harsh. Uh, they're reckless. They, 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 uh, they, and they give everything that, that the father asks, uh, that the son asks. And there are those fathers who are harsh, don't give anything. And we, we look at this from this perspective. A father who gives everything, a child will always come. A child will ask for everything and will be confident that nothing gets turned away. A father who is harsh, the, the child will come and, and, and be af or will never come because he's afraid of getting a beating. Jesus says that our Father in heaven is that Father who loves and yet is disciplined. He gives us what we need. He gives us what is best. He gives us the good things. And he never denies it when it's good. And that's a, that's a wonderful thing. How often we ask for bad things. How often we ask for those things that we, that we shouldn't ask for. For those things that, that seem good to us but are actually harmful. But he will only give us that which is good for us. And I love how Jesus here says how much more. He doesn't qualify it. He doesn't actually tell us how much more. He leaves it for us to, to fill in how much more. And the answer is infinitely more. He will give us the good things. I, we won't go there because we need to move on to the, to the golden rule. But when you get to, the, to, the, to Luke's account of this sermon, the good things that here Matthew says are replaced by the Holy Spirit. How much more the, the Father will give you the Holy Spirit that is the best of things, to have the Holy Spirit. 
to help us, to empower us, to enable us. That's the best of gifts. Our Father in heaven, he knows how to give. He knows how to, what to give far better than we ourselves know how to ask. Let me say it again. If you, that's a, a, a summary of, this, of these four verses, four or five verses. Our Father in heaven knows far better how to give than we know how to ask. And lastly, we come to verse 12, the golden rule. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And before we examine this passage, I need to make one observation in order to, to understand it. I've told you before, didn't I? Whenever you see a, a therefore, you need to ask yourself, uh, why is it therefore? That a therefore connects, bridges something, bridges a, a segment with another segment. There is a connection. And, you may, and the question then is, what is the bridge? What teachings does this verse, therefore, uh, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets, what verses does this verse connect to? What teaching does this verse connect to? Some people say that it's connected to just the, the immediately uh, uh, before, from verse 7 to verse 11, about asking, seeking in prayer, that we should also, the same goodness that the Father demonstrates to us, we should demonstrate to others. We should extend goodness to others. It might also, some argue, be linked to the verse 1 through 6, the judge not lest you be judged uh, passage about uh, not judging, implying that practicing this rule, do unto others what you would have done unto you, is the, the moderates us, uh, moderates a critical judgmental attitude. But my argument is that actually, this therefore closes off the, the whole of the Sermon on the Mount. We have a little bit more, but these are, are concluding statements. But closes off the body of the sermon. This is a summary of everything that Jesus says from uh, chapter 5, verse uh, 13 onwards up until now. It is a summary of, of that message of Christ coming not to uh, annul, not to... Uh, do away with the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus here says, therefore, whatever you do, want, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. It's him summarizing the righteousness that we are to seek. The, the kingdom of God is about doing to others what we, in this world, what we would want them to do to us. It is that all-encompassing sermon it is the conclusion. It pertains to how we behave towards others. All our interactions, all our thoughts, all our conversations, all our actions are contained in this small, uh, in this small sentence. Whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. And it is the guiding principle for us. It should be the intrinsic desire of every citizen of the kingdom of God 
which is the theme of this sermon, to want to follow in the righteousness that Christ sets out for us because he is the one who came and loved to the uttermost. Some, at one point, someone asked, uh, what is the, uh, our Lord Jesus, what's the greatest of, uh, of commandments? And Jesus summarized the, the two great commandments. You shall love God and you shall love your neighbor. And here it is, a summary of the law and the prophets. Do unto others as you would have done unto you. You can only do this, you can lo only love your neighbor in this way if you love God first. This is a call to all Christian believers to live justly and fairly in our relationship with our neighbors because we love God. And how different would the world be if we all lived this way? If we all acted this way? This, this rule, uh, by the way, before, as I'm closing, this rule... Uh, it's not new in a way to the teaching of Jesus. First of all, because it was already in the Old Testament. This is just a summary. This is, as Jesus says, the law and the prophets. But it was present somewhat in many other uh, cultures and uh, wise writings of, of many religions in, in antiquity. Socrates had a, uh, a similar saying. Confucius uh, from China uh, had a similar, from Confu Confucianism had a similar saying. I say similar because it's not exactly the same. When Socrates quoted this golden rule or spoke about this golden rule or when Confucius spoke about it, it's so often as we quote, quote it in society. Don't do unto others what you wouldn't want done to yourself. Jesus' radical message here goes a step beyond. It goes to action, to love put into practice. And the love that Jesus speaks of here is that same love that he reached us with. It's not just love uh, that uh, expresses itself in doing something good, helping someone although it does, but it's a redemptive kind of love. It's a love that wants to transform and reach people with the saving message of the gospel. How it would be better if we apply this golden rule in all our relationships. Our families would be much better. I was thinking about this. Do I treat uh, my wife? Or do you treat your husband or do you treat your spouse in this way? Do you do to her what you would want to be done to you? Do you use, do you apply this rule in that relationship? Do you treat your children the way you want to be treated? Or perhaps to the children, do you treat your parents the way and respect them in the way that you would want to be treated and respected.
point is, is that we don't act towards others as they deserve. That's what Jesus taught us with his life. We don't act towards others as they deserve to be acted to. We act to others as we would want them to act towards us. That's the justice. That's the righteousness of Jesus. He came into this world not to treat us as we deserve to be treated, because we deserve nothing but condemnation. But he came with a different kind of righteousness, with a different kind of attitude, with a, with, a, with a love that is redemptive. That's why the righteousness of the kingdom surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes. Unless your righteousness surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus said, you will not enter the kingdom of God. And here it is. This is the righteousness that surpasses the scribes and Pharisees. Because the righteousness, the justice of the scribes and Pharisees wasn't that high. It was a righteousness that was predicated on earning and deserving. It was a righteousness that, that was loveless, that is brutal, criti critical, passionless. But the righteousness of the kingdom is one that treats others as you would want to be treated yourself. And this is one of those points in our lives, uh, one of those points when we come to the word of God. And who among us is sufficient for these things? We ask, who among us has, is able to do this perfectly? Who among us uh, has uh, been able to fulfill the golden rule perfectly? as if Jesus' law, his, this Sermon on the Mount, shines a light on our lives so that we see our sin, so that we see our need for grace. Because the reality is none of us can fulfill the law and the prophets. None of us can fulfill the law of God perfectly or at all. We cannot st stop judging others for their failings. We do that every day. Perhaps you've been doing that even now. Perhaps I've been doing that. We're not charitable. We're not loving. We're not, uh, we don't treat others as we would want us and them to treat us. So what do we do? What do we do? We return to the first word of this passage, ask, seek, knock. Ask God for mercy, to forgive. Ask him to make you a new seek, uh, that you would uh, seek him to transform your actions and your, uh, and your uh, uh, heart. That he would forgive you that he would transform you. And Jesus then says, it will be given to you. The Lord will give us his mercy. And he gives us forgiveness for our sins to whoever who will ask. Because the same Lord that laid down these laws for us 
both in the law and the prophets and now in the, in, the, in the new Sinai, in the Sermon on the Mount, the same Lord that put this high bar before us is the one who took on flesh, who was obedient to death, death of the cross, and paid the penalty for our sins and our shortcomings and our failings. Same Jesus who gave us and wrote down for us all these laws also gave his life so that those who break them would have forgiveness. And he will give us his spirit. He does give us his spirit so that our eyes would be opened, so that we'd grow in love for him and for our neighbor, that we may better serve our neighbor and God, our Lord. And that's what we need. We need the mercy of Christ. And that's what we should ask for. For those who ask, they receive. Those who seek, they find. And those who knock, it shall be.